Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics, a podcast dedicated to exploring how things get places and the people who get them there. We'll talk with logistics and supply chain leaders about innovation, industry trends, and the future of the logistics business. Now, here's your host, Joe Lynch. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics podcast. My name is Joe Lynch. Thank you so much for joining us today. Today's topic is... Well, it's not a topic, it's a person. It's the Knishal Logistics Story with my friend, Christy Knishal. How's it going, Christy? It's going great. Thank you for having me. I hope I don't have to keep saying Knishal throughout the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Christy, I've got. I can make that happen. So, Christy, please introduce yourself and your company and where you're at. Sure. Christy Knischel, CEO, President of Knischel Logistics. We are a third-party logistics company, but we specialize in intermodal. And so that's also called an IMC, Intermodal Marketing Company. And we're out of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. You know, I have to ask, what is intermodal? Because there's people who are going to go, I don't know what that is. Yeah, intermodal <laughs> is when you have a truck on the origin um, that you pick up the freight, you bring it to a ramp, a rail ramp, and it gets put on the train, moves across the country, and you have another dray pick it up on the destination end at a rail ramp and deliver it to the customer. So those are those containers you see stacked. Yep, double stacked on the trains moving. Yep, and it, and for those of you who who haven't given it much thought, those containers, the containerization is like a huge big deal in logistics. and. A generation ago, we didn't have them. My dad, who's passed away now, told me when he was a kid, he used to unload boxcars. So you would unload at every location. And now we just have a big crane pick up that container and put it either on a chassis or on a flatbed, right? Yep. Or train. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Gets, you know, put on the chassis and the the flatbed or or train, as you said. So So tell tell us a little bit more about your company. Who do you guys serve? So we serve customers of all sizes. Um, We have a lot of small, medium-sized customers, but we also serve those larger Fortune 500 companies as well. Um, There's some niches within their business that we're able to provide some expertise to them and help them out um, alongside the asset carriers that typically, you know, haul freight for those type of companies. But, you know, we are very diversified and you know, as I mentioned, the small, mid-sized companies are really where we play the best in. And do you guys just do the intermodal or do you also do some over-the-road? Yes, we do some over-the-road truck brokerage and we also have an LTL offering as well. Very nice. Yeah, and yeah. the nature of all that is they're always interconnected because sometimes you're and taking that container and unloading it and putting it in less than truckload or trucks. Yeah, and when our company started, we just did intermodal. That was all we did. But then as we grew, the customers had needs for truck brokerage and LTL and we didn't want them to go to other companies for That's- that. That's how I've always felt about it. When somebody says, well, we don't do LTL. And I was like, you're talking to shippers every damn day. How dare you let them get away? And I used to do, when I was at a third-party logistics, we did LTL. And a lot of times we end up with the truckload business because they liked the way we did their LTL. Yep. The truckload's the easiest business in, you know, oh, volume of what's out there. how dare you? <laughs> well, I don't want to say easiest. That's probably the wrong word. That's the majority of what is right. available out right. there. You know, I always describe our business as simple but not easy. <laughs> yeah. No, it's it's definitely not easy. I would say that's the easiest opportunity to get. Yes. From You're a right. customer. Definitely right. You're definitely that's the big dog, right? That's where the yep. that's where the majority of the business is. But anyway, let's learn a little bit more about you. Where so where did you grow up? 
Where'd you go to school? What kind of kid were you? So initially, we moved to Pittsburgh from New Jersey, but I was very young, probably three or four years old. So just outside of Pittsburgh, north in the Cranberry area, and, you know, just went to school at Seneca Valley High School here, very big high school, and, you know, just had a, I would say maybe a little bit boring childhood. That's not bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, moving a couple times, you know, the parents got divorced at an early age, so both, you know, my father had worked for the railroad at the time and then went on to, you know, the IMC side of the business at one point. And IMC stands for what? Intermodal Marketing Company. So those are the guys who don't own the assets, they do the marketing for the assets and the sales. Yeah, so basically it's, we have the rail contracts with the railroads. So because we do so much rail, I mean, 75% of our revenue is with the railroads. So that's why we consider ourselves, it's like that little niche type of you know business. And actually, I want to say, I could be completely wrong, but I think of the whole transportation uh, market out there, like 4% is rail. It sounds like such a small number, but it's still a significant amount of business that's out there. Right. You know, when, when whenever uh, I think of rail, I never thought about this until I got to the logistics business. Every once in a while when you go to a truck, I mean, a, a railroad crossing and the, and there's a train going by, they'll have hundreds of trucks and a hundred of <laughs> cars. And each one of those is basically a truckload. So it'd be as if you were driving on the expressway one day and 130 truck trucks passed you. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. And actually... When I started, it was more single stack, and then you were actually putting, well, TOFC trailer on flat car, where they're putting the full container with the wheels on the flat car of the train. But now they've obviously progressed to where they double stack the containers on the majority of the trains. There's still some TOFC, but now you're getting double, right. you know, the containers. So. So it's an alternative to the the over the road. So so your dad was in this business, was working for other people, or, or did he start something on his own? Yeah, so my dad initially was working for the Katy Railroad back in the day, which is why he moved to Pittsburgh in the first place. And yes, he's, you know, once he left the railroad and that was done, he went on, you know, our side, 3PL side of the business, worked for multiple other companies back in the day. And I joined him back in 97 when he was an agent for another company. Okay. So he was, he had an agency then separate? Yes. Yes. And so you, so you joined right out of school? Yeah. I mean, well, probably about a year. I was 19 years old. I thought I wanted to get involved in criminology, went to IUP for that. Um, didn't have the, the best experience there, so I left. And I decided to go to the Art Institute of Pittsburgh to actually study fashion design. And I actually was running a couple pizza shops, too, at the same same time. And I actually approached my dad because I wanted to buy a pizza shop. And he convinced me that that wasn't the best route to go. He actually owned a pizza shop back in the day, which I really didn't even know. He said, you'll never be happy with the money you make. Why don't you come work for me? So at 19, I quit school and went to work for him. And I still worked at the pizza shop for about a year when I first started working with him. Yeah. So you had a little bit of an entrepreneurial spirit before you got into that. I did. 
Well, my dad would keep telling me to quit the other job, and I said, you're not paying me enough <laughs> to live on my own, so I have to work two jobs. So. I, have to, I have to tell you my pizza nightmare story here. My dad worked at Ford Motor Company, and he was an engineer, and he had uh, wanted to be an entrepreneur, and he was saving up his money, and he wanted to buy a dry cleaner and laundry business that you know we could run on the side. And he was friends with Mike Illich, who's the founder of Little Caesars. They played softball together. And they were into it. And Mike Illich started Little Caesars. So he had his first franchise and he started saying to my dad, don't buy a dry cleaner, buy my first, my first pizza place. And I'll right. just open up down the street and we'll share advertising. And my dad said he would come over to the house with the money and dump it on the bed and say, this is what we made today. And he's counting on it. And um, my dad bought a dry cleaner laundry. <laughs> <laughs> laundromat and, and as a kid i remember having to go there with my mom like if i called in if i said i didn't feel well at school my mom would go all right you can come with me to the store oh i, I instantly felt better i would rather go to school sick than have to go to that damn laundromat so anyway so Thanks, Dad, for not buying that Little Caesars franchise, the first one. <laughs> right, right. Well, that's the thing, too. I mean, I think even running the, like, I was running the shop, so I knew what the guy was making. And I talk about this a lot. It was like $40,000 a year, and I thought that was great, you know? I mean, and it is, I mean, now it's a starting salary in most right. companies. So, obviously, he was right. I probably wouldn't be happy with that, so. Yeah, well, people love pizza, but, I mean, there's a, there's a reason things happen. So, You've kind of found like I'm not particularly happy with college. If you're going from criminology to f fashion, you're like you're looking for your 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 purpose, right? And then you said maybe maybe it's not criminology, maybe it's not fashion, maybe it's pizza, <laughs> right? <laughs> and then so he said, no, no, it's railroads. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, railroads, logistics. Like, what is this? You know. <laughs> But yeah, it's it's a pretty it was a pretty wild ride, I would say. But I think that also goes to say that most you know kids coming out of um, high school or you still really don't know what it right. is you want to do. Right. The silly thing we do is we push right into college and spend a lot of money now on college, and then you go you, you for you if somebody was like, "Come on, Christy, get that criminology degree," and then and perhaps you would love it when you got into it, but right. maybe it's not the right fit. And I think we talked about this offline is that uh, we need to do a better job with education. Also, we have to recognize people are switching careers all the time. Right. And so, so somebody says, oh, yeah, you started off in finance, and now I find myself in supply chain. Should I have to go back and get a degree? Right. It seems to me we got to get with certificates and you know, right. make it easier. So anyway, you started working for your dad, and you guys were an agent for uh, another company. Yep. And uh, take it from there. What, what was next? Yeah, so when... You know, my father decided to open up Kanisha Logistics in 2003. It was because I worked for him. My brother worked for him and my sister had worked for him on and off. Um, I think he felt that at some point he wanted to leave a legacy to his children. Um, he wasn't sure what would happen if he retired being an agent for another company. Like, you know, would they take it over? Would they, you know, make a save right. or whatnot? So that's why he went out on his own in 2003 to start his own company. And, you know, my dad put every penny that he had into opening the business and everything out of his 401k, all of that. And the interesting thing I talk about, too, is when that happened, sometimes people don't realize how much money it takes to open a business, right? You think you know, right. but you don't. So that was one of probably the early on struggles because dealing with the railroads, they take their money pretty fast. 
And that being what we did, um, we had to have cash flow. So pretty quickly, we were able, though, to get, you know, bank line of credit. And my dad brought over some salespeople that he knew and had worked with previously. And we just took off. Like, we just started growing like crazy and just has had significant growth since. And, you know, like I said, over the years, um, 2007, my dad actually um, stepped down and made me president of the company. And and nice. With, yeah. And with that being said, I will say I started as an intermodal dispatcher, but I did move my whole w- way up through the company. I, you know, worked in finance. I, I booked freight on the truck brokerage on the LTL side. I did pricing. Um, I did HR. I did claims. I did sales. I traveled. My dad, you know, took me on sales calls. So I did it all before I got to the seat I'm in today. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's nice. And again, I, I, when we were prepping for this, I talked to you about, I worked for my dad's, my dad after not buying the pizza place and he started an engineering business at some point and I worked for him. And, you know, you, you really do blow through a lot of money. Like I lived in my parents' basement, so I didn't get paid very much. And the reason is because there wasn't a lot of money coming in and it's a struggle. You know, you're always, the cash flow is a never ending cruel mistress. It just seemed, I always remember like just going to the PO box to get checks. Yeah. And I remember it would be like, take a deep breath, open that box. It was so mostly disappointing. <laughs> right, right. Well, again, I think just to go back to like being an agent, because we have an agent network here at Kinesial now. Um, a lot of times they do that because they don't want, they want us to be their back office, right? Sometimes I don't think right. they realize, you know, what that takes or the pressure um, to make sure you get funded and have the funds to do it. And so it's definitely a learning process. I've, you know, obviously I didn't graduate college and I've had to learn everything just by, you know, the hard knocks learning right. as we go. But it, in a lot of ways, if you'd gone to college, you would still be learning by hard knocks. That's right. that's the crazy thing about, you know, college is it, there's not a lot of people who you hire, I'm sure, who say, oh, I went to college. Now I fully understand what you do here at Kinesial Logistics. And I have really good background in railroad. That's not what's happening. Right, right. Absolutely. (laughs) They say, Christy, I have this really good experience. I worked at fashion and I worked at pizza and now I want to wear in railroads. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah. I I don't know if I'd have the same opportunity. Well, I guess I might have the same opportunity somewhere else, but, um, but I will say I'm very grateful though that I had the opportunity because i I don't know that I would have been able to do this the way that it happened, you know, without my father doing what he has done. Right. Yeah. You get to stand on the on the uh, shoulders of giants. That's very nice. So what year did you take over? I took over in 2007. And then as, um, you know, a couple of years later, my dad started gifting us shares of the company. And then by 2012, I was 51% owner of the company. And then we became woman-owned certified. Nice. That was yes. a big milestone. Yes, it was a huge milestone. Yeah, I, I didn't know if that would happen or how that would happen. I just knew that that was another avenue to, to potentially get more business, have more visibility. Not that I just wanted to get business because of that status or title, but just to have that equal opportunity with some customers that you might not get, you know, if you weren't. Well, the reality is there are some companies in the supply chain who say we have our own internal goals and we are looking to work with women-owned business or minority business. And, you know, every once in a while I've heard, I've talked to people all the time and some people go, I've heard minority people in particular say, we're not going to become a minority certified business because we don't have to, we don't have to win business that way. And I always say, I would take advantage of that. Right. Right. 
Well, I'll tell you this. I mean, my dad, it's kind of interesting. He will still question me to this day, like, did you get anything out of it? What has it done for you? (laughs) And what I will say is it has not helped us win business. But what it has done is the events that you go to and network, the the networking, the people you meet there at those conferences or meetings, that's where we've gotten business, not necessarily the big companies that say, hey, we have minority spend and Yes, we've been able to get on some bids. I mean, bids are easy to get on, right? It, especially right now. But, <laughs> you know, you get the opportunity, but you don't win a whole lot off of right. bids. So if anything, it's just putting your name out there and kind of, you know, hey, there is this other company out there. And to be quite honest, that minority part of it, I mean, as much as I love that part, I will say it hasn't been that huge in like right. getting the business. I've, I used to work with a trucking company that was my minority owned. And what they would tell me all the time was that we don't like to lead with it because we notice when we lead with it, they send us, oh, we'll push you down the hall to, you know, diversity or whatever department. And they said, and it's kind of takes us off the beaten path. And they said, we, we don't win business because it, it's kind of like the cherry on top. Right. You know, just if if all things being equal, perhaps we get it. But they always said it is not the, not the golden ticket. And so it's, it's it's very true. It's not the golden ticket. But like I said, I think the, the best experience we have is when you meet the other people that are trying to get business right. from these other companies, then you start to do business with those people. And that's where we've been able to see most of the value um, with that certification and so, you know, I'll take it. <laughs> well, I think also, I mean, I think you you mentor people who are coming up in, and, and as a way for them to connect with people like you who have been successful. Absolutely. So, so if, if, if it connects you with a few good people, maybe that's worth the time. So tell us a little bit about your, uh, the growth of your business and, and some of the ups and downs and that you've experienced. First off, while you're working for your dad and then since you took over. Yeah. So, you know, like I mentioned earlier, the growth of of the business has, you know, definitely been strong every year, year after year, we continue to grow on our own money, um, have not had any equity stakes. Hallelujah. (laughs) Yeah. All our own money. We're profitable. We, you know, I actually had set a goal a very long time ago and I'm being totally honest based on nothing to hit a hundred million. We hit 84 million and we're, on pace to maybe hit that hundred million this year or maybe next year. So, so that's kind of gives you a little bit of journey about you know since two thousand three. Well, where, 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 where were you when when uh, you you joined? So when we joined, we no, probably when you, when you joined the when you you joined your dad at the agency. Yeah, for it was for Cornerstone Systems is the is the company he actually worked for. He was a couple million in revenue. Wow. So, yeah. So when we which opened Kinesial. Which is nothing to sneeze at. No, no. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I guess I forgot that part. So, yeah, it went from a couple million all the way up to the 84 million, you know, the year before. So, yeah, it's been tremendous growth. And the ups and downs, I will say, you know, working with my dad was very challenging. He was a police officer. He was in Vietnam. He had mm. a very, I don't know if this is the right word, but dictatorship style of right. leadership. That, that's that's the older generation. Uh... Yes. And I will say it was really, as much as I suffered somewhat, it was also 
a very good thing for me because I think it made me who I was today or who I am right. today. It's pushed me to prove that I could do the job. It's pushed me to be, I think, a better leader. But what I will say is that's one of the leadership things that I changed when I took over and right. the way we you know, are with our people here today. So that was a big hurdle, I think, for me to get over. And then as the business grew, my dad was a great salesperson, but none of us really knew like how to run a business or looking at numbers and all those kinds of things. So, you know, that was a challenge that down the road, you know, eventually we had to get some other people in here and, you know, we've had some bad choices that were made and, you know, we had brought in a guy actually to help run the company at one point um, because I really didn't know a whole lot about that as much as I could could learn. I was trying, you know, and then unfortunately it was, it was definitely a bad decision and we had to go on to a, um, you know, move on from that person and I was able to promote someone from within who currently runs my company now who's been here 15 years and he's worked his way right. up as well. So that was definitely, I think, a hurdle <laughs> because my dad still owned, you know, the majority of the business. And one of the challenges, as much as my dad defended me with customers and carriers that didn't want to talk to a woman in the business as another hurdle, there were times I couldn't get things done that I needed to with my dad because I think my dad also felt, well, you don't have the experience or you didn't go to college. You always see you uh, as a, a, yeah. a little girl. Exactly. So I would literally have to go to some of the other men in the organization and bring the idea to him. But that's how I got it done. Like. Right. And it worked. And as much as it, you know, maybe wasn't the best way for me, it, I mean, it did work. It got the job done and eventually. Toughened you up. <laughs> yes, yes. You know, so that was another challenge too. And then, you know, like I said, I remember too, when we did have to make the change in management in the company, I was just fighting with my dad about like, we need to do this, we need to do it. And then one day I just came in and I made the decision to get rid of the person. And then my dad was like, why would you do that without me? And I said, cause I knew you wouldn't do it, you know? And it's like, <laughs> it, it had to be done. And, you know, so those were like the challenges, I think, separating the family from like actually oh, running yeah. the business. That's always difficult. Yes, very difficult. So, you know, and again, and because of that situation too, we had, it was like 2013, we had a year where things were going in a wrong direction due to, you know, some decisions that were made with this particular person and we had to lay off 18 people. Oh, that must have been painful all by itself. It was so painful that I couldn't even talk and to have to go on the floor and tell everybody else, like, you're the people that are going to stay with us. And we were able to hire back some people, but we, we literally, you know, since then, I mean, everything has been great. I mean, I think that we have a good leadership team in place. The people that are in leadership here have been 12, 15 years have been here. That's fantastic. Yeah. That, 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 that sets the culture too. You know, it's interesting. You mentioned your dad being kind of that old school boss where the boss knows everything and no one else. You just do yep. what the boss tells you. And, and yep. I started working in the early 80s and I worked for my dad who was also, you know, do it my way, right? Yep. <laughs> and usually he'd shout it at the top of his lungs if you didn't do it, right? <laughs> right, right. Oh, and, yeah, absolutely. And then I worked for a lot of different – I worked in automotive engineering and design, and it sounds like very professional, but it, it could be very – I remember I had bosses who threatened to beat beat people's ass. Like, like, right. like I was thinking, this, this isn't always like what I thought it'd be right. like. But I worked early on guys who were had fought in World War II in Korea and later Vietnam. 
And when you come through that military background, God bless them. They had an, that was a different military then. And it was a military that was like, you know, pretty brutal. And these guys had a lot of them had fought battles. I mean, it changes you. And contrast that now with the leadership that we have, which is so much different. And so much of that is women because women bring a different leadership style. You typically won't see women kind of taking that tact of, I'm going to scream at the top of my lungs at you. It's just, it's just a softer touch. I mean, there's a lot of nuances to it that I, you know, we won't get into, but I've had a lot of women bosses over time and I was fine with it because you grow up with, you grow up with a mom, <laughs> most of us, right. who you're like, yeah, I'm used to my mom. She's got my, she's got my best interest at heart. And, but guys like my dad, he would never have worked for a woman. <laughs> I mean, no, no way. You're right. <laughs> Well, you're right. I mean, and to be quite honest, like growing up in the company, I mean, I was like a 30 year old boss and I'd have some salespeople that were like 55, 60 right, years that's old. Tough. <laughs> and it, and it was, and they respected me, but then when it no longer worked and you'd have to separate, then it was like, oh, you're too young. You don't know what you're doing. Like, you know, then that backlash would come and you know, I mean, at the end of the day, though, I still just I knew who I was and what I was doing. And at the end of the day, I mean, it's it's just what it is. So, I mean, to talk to another challenge, the other challenge is just being a woman in a man's world and just holding your own and your confidence to to get through it and show that you deserve to be there, too. Yeah. You know, it's interesting you said being a, a woman in a man's world. And, and I'm not saying it's not. I don't even know. That's right. not my experience. I, I sometimes think it's this stuff gets in our head and it's more it's more in our because uh, I think one of the things I'm, I'm a white white man and I'm, a, now I'm older. So someone could say, well, yeah, it's easy. You're a white dude, right? You're an old white dude. Everything comes on a silver platter. I've had advantages in my life. I, I don't know. I, my biggest advantage, I always say, is where I was born, how I was born and who I was born to. But I'll throw this out there that I think if if I have a failure, I have no choice but to say, it's me. I can't say, well, it's because I'm an old white dude and we don't get what we want. Right, <laughs> and, right. And in a way that, that forces, whether it's my fault or not, everything's my fault. Every failure right. I have is my fault. And same with you. I'm sure you guys wouldn't have yep. grown that way if you didn't say, it doesn't matter if I'm a woman, it doesn't matter my right. color. No, you're All right. of it stops with you and it doesn't matter, doesn't matter whose fault it is. <laughs> No, you're right. It doesn't. And I think, you know, some of that comes from, you know, early on in my career, I would have customers that wouldn't talk to me because I was not a man like legit. My dad really? had to get on the phone. Yep. He had to get on <laughs> the phone is and old tell school. them. Yeah. I mean, even some carriers, I'm going to talk to the manager. I am the manager. No, I want to talk to the, to the man that's there. Like my, <laughs> and my dad, like I said, in the same token, get on the phone, fight that argument. We're not going to use them. We fired a customer because of it. So that was the struggle, even to this day. And I'm not saying that it's a bad thing because I feel like I've earned my place no matter who I am, right. man, woman, whatever. Um, but there's still, you know, 60, 100 people in a room and I'm the only woman in the audience. And that's just, yeah. you know, how it is. But I will say now things are a lot different now. And women are becoming more, I think, prominent in our industry in particular. And I just think it's great to see that. But at the end of the day, like you said, I mean, it, it shouldn't matter who right. you are. And I, and I think that's kind of what I'm trying to put out there. Well, well, and I think you also can't be successful if you give yourself excuses. I mean, right. every step of the way, it sounded as if you said, okay, this is what it is. It doesn't matter if that guy doesn't want to talk to women. It doesn't matter if this guy won't, won't give me his business because he doesn't want to work with a woman. At some point, 
you've, you've gotten over that because you, if you didn't, you wouldn't be successful. Absolutely. Yep. Well, I think it gave me more ambition to right. prove that I can be here. And like you said, it shouldn't matter. Unfortunately, there's a lot of things that I've heard in the past, you know, with other companies and other situations that are just, you know, unfortunate, but, you know, we, it should just be the best person right. for the job. I think in a lot of ways, we were getting very close to that. I know there will always be exceptions. And, you know, it's interesting because I'm, as I get older, one of my friends said to me, he's much older than me, but he said something about <laughs> age discrimination. I go, uh, dude, don't start. <laughs> don't, don't, <laughs> right? don't even, don't tell me. I don't want to hear it. <laughs> Well, you know, the interesting thing too is, you know, love being a woman owned company, but I also am pretty adamant about don't give me an opportunity per se, because I am, I don't, yes, like I don't, because my dad will tell me all the time, I don't want you to, you know, make sure you don't look like a man hater. I'm like, I'm not a man hater. I said, it's just, I'm trying to promote women to have a voice to build themselves up because most women don't do that. It's not about hating men. A man runs my company. Right. You know, so to, I mean, to, to me, I always, I think the whole discussion is, you know, when we had this re- in recent years where people are like, oh, men are the patriarchy. And I was like, I'm very close to my mom. I'm very close to my sister. I have two daughters. I spend my, my life trying to help my daughter succeed. I never think to myself, well, I really don't want them to succeed that much because they're, they're women after all. <laughs> I, mean, I, <laughs> right? I can't envision how, and I think most men are in that position where you say, yeah, I'd like to see everybody be successful. Say there's right. plenty of success to go around. So we should all, this is my feeling. When anybody says we need to do more for fill in the, fill in the blank. I always say yes, yes to all. I, I feel like if somebody is trying to get a leg up in this business, help them. Somebody's trying to get right. into this business, help them. Right. Absolutely. Man, woman, whoever, doesn't matter. Right. So the key events in your business, when you, obviously you took over in 2007, so and you said some of the turning points and bad hires, but overall it's been a pretty steady, after, the, after you got over past the cash flow issues, you grew into this role. And now what are some of the challenges you have with the growth? Because I know you've been growing like a weed. That has its own issues. Yeah, I would say, you know, the issues obviously are like, personnel and how many people do we need or what layers do we need? Um, Not really knowing um, those type of things or, you know, obviously the technologies and what things should we be doing. So at the end of the day, I've actually gotten myself involved with consultants to kind of talk with them about like, well, what should we be doing at this size? What do we need to be looking at? Because I didn't truly know. Um, So that's helped Nobody, Nobody knows until they get there. Yeah, yeah. And I will say one of the biggest hurdles for us was just getting past the 50 million revenue mark. It was so hard just to get there. But once we got there, it was just like soaring after that. It just, and I will say, you know, another point too is just because of where I am at in my size, it seems like every 25 million in revenue, there's a change. There's a change in whether it's personnel, another layer of management, you know, looking out to other HR services. We brought in a controller two years ago. I have a CFO that's part-time that's involved looking at numbers and strategy, having strategic meetings. Because to be quite honest, we got to where we were without really no plan. Right. You're just running fast. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And it's like, we can't just keep doing this forever, you know, and then. The other thing I will say is, you know, 
I thought I had to know it all. And I was kind of almost ashamed. Like, you know, I didn't want to ask because I felt like these people are going to think you should know you're the president, you're the CEO. And I would Google stuff and, you know, but after working with the consultants, my CFO said to me, you don't know what you don't know. And one of the best things I think that I have learned is to surround myself by people smarter than me because (laughs) I could not do like what John does for my company. That's not my expertise, but finding those people and then allowing myself to understand that it's okay to not know those things. I I always remember there was the, when I worked in still in engineering, I worked, there was a vice president of engineering at Chrysler and very well-respected guy. We all loved him. Still do. And he um, he would always say it when we'd all be in his office, he goes, I don't know the answer to that. He goes, but here's the thing. I know somebody who does. <laughs> yes, see? But it took a while to learn that. Like, you yeah, know? and I remember he said, I go, how do you know that you know someone? That, you know, he goes, there's, there's like 10,000 of you guys. So I know somebody who works up here for me knows that answer. Right, right. So. I mean, and another thing, too, I would say is just, you know, the banking relationship. That's something my head, my dad got me involved in early. But learning that, learning the financials and then like building the network that I have now, I sit here and look back and think like, I built this network. Like you said, I can go out to anybody and find help right. anywhere or refer help because of well, what now that I've you're, done. Now that you're that size your company is at 84 million in revenue, cl- close to 100 million. Now the bankers, you can call on the bat phone. <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah. Before you're before you're begging them. Now it's changed. I bet. (laughs) Right. Well, yeah. And the interesting thing is, um, we had a guy that's been with us for a long time at a bank, and he left a few years to another bank. We were his first customer, and he's like a high up in this this new bank, and we switched our business over to him. But he was very instrumental in helping us too, not just being the banker, but like I think you should look at this. I think you should look at that. So we ended up going with the bank he's at now, and I sit on the board of the bank wow. as well. So, so it's pretty cool stuff. Very nice. Very nice. So I see there's a sign right at, right to, on your desk. I can see half of it. What, what does that sign oh, say? Oh, yes. It says, realize Grab how it. good you Grab really it. are. What does it say? Realize. I could see half the words. All right. Realize how good you really are. So you're still reminding yourself of that. After this long journey, you say, yes, I need this reminder. <laughs> Well, you know, what's funny is I never, it was always hard for me. And I felt like I've worked my whole career to prove to my dad that I could do the job. My dad purchased that for me. And I, I use that it. as a reminder. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I try to use that too, though, just to remind other women, because I had a confidence issue for a very long time, you know, and now I'm in I, a better I spot. I always remember this and it's, it's, it's telling about how the world works. Carl Icahn, who was wildly successful. I think he's still alive. He was this businessman. And so when Forbes came out with like the list of the wealthiest Americans, he was like number nine. And he came home and he was despondent. His wife said, what's wrong? And he opens up the magazine, shows his wife and says, I'm so sorry (laughs) that like number nine on a list of the wealthiest American wealthiest people probably in the world. And you're like, right. Are you kidding me? Like, and so like what was ever going to be good enough in his mind? Right. When, when could he ever call himself a success? And I was thinking, Oh, that's crazy. Crazy. Right. No, it is crazy. I, people ask me that all the time. Like, what do you consider success or like at what your point? I mean, yeah, I have my goal. I want to hit that hundred million and I know we're going to hit it. And, um, 
that's exciting. But I think success is the fact that we're still here. We're growing. I've had people here for a long time. We don't have the turnover that most companies do and winning awards and just, you know, being that company that's out there competing with other billion dollar right. companies that's right along surviving, you know, and so that to me is success in yep. itself. So when I started doing um, podcasts with, you know, interviewing people who are founders of companies, owners of companies, I started doing Ryan Schreiber, my friend who works over at Carrier Direct, and uh, he, he's also doing something and his is inside the founder studio. We've done these some of these together. And one of the things when when I first mentioned or he first mentioned this, we, we had a long conversation, too long. We wasted some time, but we were talking about, you know, lucky versus good. And then also like, you know, you know, how, how do these people deal with failure? So. First off, do you think you've been lucky or good? I, I think you've been lucky, but you've also been good. Explain how you think of it. Yes. I think of it as I was lucky to get an opportunity to work with my father and lucky that he decided to go out on his own. So I had the opportunity that I have. But in the same token, I had to do the work and I had to do the, the job to get to where I'm at today. So I guess that's how I see that because even though he might have, you know, he picked me out of the three kids to run the company. If I couldn't run the company, I wouldn't be in this position. And that's how I look at it. Because, you know, people will say, oh, right. daddy gave you a job. Daddy gave you a job. And it's like, yeah, he gave me the opportunity, but right. I had to do the work. And if well, I couldn't do the and work, also I the be here. company that he gave you <laughs> was not nearly as successful as it is today. And and growing Absolutely. a business is every bit as hard as starting one. And I think it's, there's, um, you, you got to kind of earn your own breaks. And uh, I think this is my own perspective. You, you're lucky if you, you're born with the drive in you and, uh, and maybe it's raised, you know, maybe your parents encouraged it and however you might've gotten it. Cause there's people who are, you know, come from very desperate backgrounds who had a, a will to succeed and did so. Right. And then there's people who are from really right. wealthy, successful families who maybe didn't get that will and shame on their parents for not, you know, encouraging them to, to grab right. onto something. Yeah. And that's actually probably the right. it's more challenging if you, if you have your own children to get them to have the same drive you do. Right. And the interesting thing is I think my dad definitely with his leadership style and all of that has instilled that in us. I've always been a hard worker. Even in high school, I did the work release where I would leave early and go to work. Like I've always worked two or yeah, three so jobs. Yeah, so that's a, that's, that's a good point. I, I, I always like to talk about that. So did you play sports or anything in school? I played some soccer. That was really about it. I was actually, I would say I was pretty good at soccer because I'm very competitive. Like I there have to go. win. Like I have that competitiveness. <laughs> So, yeah, I would say I definitely, regardless of anything else, but, you know, at home, even with my husband, whether it's, you know, cornhole or ping pong, anything that we play, I am like so determined to beat my husband <laughs> and I beat him. I would say it's like 50-50. And for the longest time, he wanted to show me how to play pool. And I refused because I was just <laughs> like, I'm not going to have you. I'm going to learn it my own. And then I finally gave up. I let him teach me. And then I beat him. And then he would get so mad. I said, look at it this way. You taught me how to play. And now I play so yeah. well that I'm beating you. It's funny. There's a lot of people who've been on my podcast when we've had this conversation about their businesses. And a lot of them played sports very competitively. A lot of them had lots of jobs in school, but almost all of them are yep. competitive. And I, I remember I'm competitive in some things, but not not most. Like playing pool, I couldn't care less if I win. 
wouldn't even, it wouldn't even enter my right. I would think this is a social thing. What do I even care? Right. Right. But like maybe, <laughs> maybe I'm, I would take great pride in my work. I wouldn't want to be the laggard in a department or like, I wouldn't want to do a podcast. That I didn't think I was proud of, but it's also can be just so damaged. I remember my father was so wildly competitive. He was playing checkers with my like two year old daughter who was just learning. And she was, you know, I was letting her win like, you know, a lot of games and then, my dad comes over and and like trounces her. I was like, "You can't let your like two year old grand like three. She's probably three or four. Probably not two. You can't let your three or four year old granddaughter win." And he's like, the look on his face was like, it, like it never occurred to him that he would let her win. And he's like, "Oh yeah, oh yeah." I was thinking, God, like that's like a curse, right? But guess what? That, yeah, that and she's I... wildly competitive. She does the Peloton thing, and she goes, "Yeah." She said, "Oh, I came in like four hundred out of uh, on Peloton." I go, "I don't know." She goes, "Like forty thousand. I'm like, "That's like pretty good." <laughs> yeah, very good. Yeah, very good. I mean, and I would say, like, even though I didn't play much sports, my dad actually coached. He was the coach of the soccer team, and it, again, everyone was like, "Oh, here comes the sergeant," you know. And I mean, and at the end of the day, I th- I think it did make people though. Yeah. It's embarrassing when you're a kid that your dad's that way. I remember because my dad, my dad was always the coach and he was a, would push, 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 but he did care. He did care. He wanted to make sure we were successful. Yeah. And uh, he would always yell at us, stop trying to act cool because we all wanted to look cool playing hockey. (laughs) (laughs) He'd say, get in the corner. He made us tougher for sure. So anyway, how, how do you personally kind of deal with like setbacks and what's your mindset related to that failure? You know, honestly, it's always a learning experience. I would say here, I mean, there's mistakes that happen or, you know, could be a hundred thousand dollars or 200, you know, (laughs) yeah. I mean, there's things that happen or what, you know, no matter what it is, but I look at it as a learning experience and now we know to go forward and do it this way. Or, you know, even my management team, I'd let them lead the company. We talk about things. They make decisions. If they make the wrong decisions, then they know that they have to quickly pivot. So as much as, you know, I would say, you know, it was a lot different than how my dad would deal with things. I'm okay with it as long as we can move forward in a better manner and have a solution that's going to work or again if it doesn't work keep changing until it does so is is that culture kind of pervade through your company now you think absolutely i think that people here know they have a voice they can do their job without having to run everything past me even from hiring to people hey we hired a couple people last week this is what we're doing i trust them and they know i trust them because like i mentioned a lot of the people here in leadership have been here 12 15 years so we've worked together as a small company five people as we grew now we're over 50 so it's been a tremendous learning experience i think for all of us and i think most companies need to adapt to the point where you have people working in the trenches. Let them tell you what might right. be better or how it's going to be. And I'm always part of that conversation. I listen. I'll give my input. But I, I don't think I've ever said, no, we're not going to do that. It's always like, let's try it. If it doesn't work, we'll move on. So, you know, I think I, I fare pretty well when it comes to those That's situations. Great. And, you know, it's interesting. Uh, even though you, you've had all the success, I think part of you can relate really easily to the the brand new person who showed up and doesn't know a damn thing. <laughs> right. And so they're right. like, I'm afraid exactly. of her. I don't want to go near her office. But if you were to right. talk to her, you say, nope, she's <laughs> part of her will never 
be anything other than that that fearful person walking right. in working for dad. So you look well, the funny look and act too, the part though. of uh, the CEO. But again, we 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 have those uh, those memories, and you never let go of them. No, absolutely. And obviously, most most of the people here, I would or probably all of them know that I've worked in their position. And most people can't say that I've done all the roles here. So I understand right. what they're going through. And I think they respect me more because of that. But when I do call people into my office, usually sometimes it's to give them a bonus check. And they're always like, oh, I thought I was going to get fired. <laughs> I'm like, I don't. <laughs> I said, really? I said, after, like, come on, you guys know. But I said, even though we have a really good culture here, I still think people get a little nervous with that. But um, it works out. So and we have great. Let's people. switch gears. Let's talk a little bit more about what's next for what's next for the industry, and then I want to hear what's next for your company. Sure. I mean, I think the industry is still going to be overhauled. There's a lot of work to do in the whole supply chain. It's not just about rail or truck or LTL or air freight or any of those modes. It's about shippers, customers coming together with providers like us and basically having conversations. How can we work together better to get the job accomplished? Um, I think the biggest challenge that we've seen is that you have your good shippers and your bad shippers and bad shippers. I mean, ones that are holding on to equipment or ones that are holding up the drivers, things like that. There's a lot of different issues in a lot of areas, but I think if everyone can start to realize, hey, we need to do things a little bit different than what right. we've done 30 years ago or 20 or have always done it, things will improve, but it's going to take time and a lot of work and collaboration right. from a lot so of different parties. I just was talking to Brian Rice about that West Coast bottleneck. And one of the things that came from that yeah. is, and he said this and it makes a lot of sense, is you know now's the time to really lean on your third-party logistics companies, your carriers, whoever you work with, and say- right guys earn your earn your keep get me how do i get out of this right. jam right i i don't want to miss right. the christmas season i can't miss the christmas season help me and maybe it's talking about alternatives right. and i think in a lot of times i use this term a lot is customers hold companies at arm's length and when i hold you at arm's length i don't ever right. get what i need from you and you don't get what you need from me right. either and you know if i start to say I'm just going to send you an Excel spreadsheet and you send it back to me with the prices and you go, oh, okay, I don't know if I can work that way. And if you want to have that, you want to get right. to the next level of performance, you have to build relationships. You have to have to meet. You have yep. to talk, get on those Zoom calls and God forbid, maybe even visit in person. <laughs> Yeah, no, absolutely. I will say, you know, we've had more people reach out than we ever have, obviously, because of the challenges. But in the same token, it is building those relationships and finding solutions with your customers, not them just expecting things to be done. And I can tell you, at the, the largest companies out there that ship, I think, have always kind of dictated to a, to a sense of what they expect because of their size. And even they are seeing that they're not getting what they want, right. no matter what size they are, because sometimes the maybe what they do isn't right. what carriers want well, to do. Well, it's a one-way communication. It's uh, we're so it's, it's almost yes. the same as uh, that old school boss. The communication is one way. I'm speaking down to you. You will do what you're told. Well, if you say I've got a huge yep. spend, so that's how it's going to be. Well, right now there's a lot of logistics companies that say. No, thanks. I can't work with you right now. There's lots of people who need help, and I'm going to work with those who are willing right. to engage and treat me as a partner. 
And I just did a panel a few weeks ago, too, and one of the things we talked about was everyone knows the issues we're going through, but what are the solutions? And part of the solution is the shipper coming to the table saying, what can I do to have you handle my business? What do we need to change and be willing to make changes? And not just the shipper, but collectively together, because at the end of the day, we have carriers that won't go into facilities, specifically grocery facilities, because of how difficult and challenging it is. So if they don't want to hear why can't I get my freight or how can I get my freight? Well, you can get it if you change these things and they're not willing to make change, then right. nothing changes. And then now you yeah, don't have anything I, I, happening. I saw this in, you know, I was advising a large shipper, very like $100 million in, in spend. And what I learned from the vice president there was that being a shipper of choice starts pretty close to the top of the company. Yep. You have to really say, we're going to engage with a third-party logistics company and, and say, and what he said, I love this, is he said, we're not very good right now. We're going to be world-class. You're going to take us there. We're going to find someone who will. I hope it's you. <laughs> and right. tell us what right. we need to do to become world-class. And when we talk about this West Coast uh, problem, I'm assuming you pick up lots of stuff on the West Coast. 30% of our so business. So what are you guys doing? I mean, is there anything different that's happening here? Are people moving out of Long Beach and Long Yeah. the port? Yeah. So what I will say is we don't do a ton of like port stuff, but we do like, so when it comes into the port, yep. it's transloaded into a box or whatnot. So we're not dealing with a lot of international type stuff, but we do ship a lot out of LA and a lot out of Northern California. And one thing that I started doing with my dad and one of the things I learned was building relationships with carriers 24 years ago. And I visited them. We talked to them. We bring them food, you know, food all works. that stuff. And nobody else was doing that. <laughs> yeah. No one else was doing that 24 years ago. So everyone's trying to do that now. But because of that and the relationships that we have built, we get equipment that we need in a lot of markets that we might not typically get because of that relationship. Um, we've been able to just find other solutions, you know, whether it's via truck or customers we're working with, you know, bringing their stuff into maybe a different port area or, um, and th the other big thing that I'm doing too, and I've done this for a long time is I talk to a lot of my competitors and we talk about, Hey, I need some boxes in these areas. Where do you need help? And there kind of go. like the smaller mid-sized ones, we're helping each other to be able to stay in this market and compete against the asset carriers. That's out wonderful. There. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot to be said for creativity over capital. You know, it's not all about spending more money. Right. Um, the additional ports and all this and, and air, air freight on some, in some cases, I have somebody kind of called it the alternative supply chain. And, and a lot of people are going to be using the alternative supply chain because we really don't have a choice. And so it, it, right. I think this would probably drive a lot of innovation over the next you know year while we try and figure out this post-pandemic, I hope post-pandemic, knock on wood, <laughs> life. Right. And so people are moving to other ports. They're using different uh, means of transport, maybe trucks or rail instead of, you know, flipping back and forth. Even barge, that was another thing we did where we, if you couldn't get intermodal or truck service from Texas to Florida, my brother had found an option to put the freight on a barge and ship it from Texas nice. to Florida. <laughs> and there's, yeah, and there's other, you know, I'm getting involved with the short line railroads in the country. There's like wait, 700 wait, short line railroads. Explain what a short line railroad is versus a regular railroad. So you have your class ones, which are the big ones, the CSX, NS, UP, BNSF, And being a big et cetera. rail, what does that mean? 
they're the class ones. They're considered the the big ones that obviously you have two on the East Coast, which are your NS and CSX and the West Coast. And are they big because they have a lot of rail, a lot of traffic? Oh, yeah. Yep. Yep. They control all that rail from the West going to the East. And the, the points that they come into would be like, say, Chicago or Memphis to interchange to another railroad on the East Coast. So they're the largest railroads that are out there. So what's a short line? So the short lines are the short ones. <laughs> now, they ride alongside or on the rails um, that are already out there, but they might have 25 miles. They might have 100 miles. Most of the short line railroads serve customers direct. So if you have, like you talked about boxcar, carload, if you have a spur, which they call, where say you have a manufacturing facility right. and you have track that comes right into the facility, that's what a lot of the short line railroads do where they're moving like raw material or product, whether it's coal, grain, that type of stuff, in and out of facilities on um, those specific areas and those little areas. So where the UP might have, you know, all the way from California to Chicago, I mean, these are, you're talking like 100 miles, you know, right. 125 miles of track or less. And I honestly, I mean... I've been in industry 24 years, but I had no idea there were 700 of them. So going through, uh, sitting on the board with the TIA, Ann Ranky, she actually had brought the American... She was just on the podcast. Yeah, so she brought... You introduced me. I did, yeah. So she brought the American um, Association of Shortline Railroads to the table, and we got to talk to a lot of them. I actually have a call with one of them on Friday, because some of them do intermodal too, but then even though they deal with customers direct, some customers don't want to do it direct. They want to go through someone like us to to book that type of service for them as well. So it's another alternative that people probably didn't look at, but we're looking at now as another we're solution. All, look, all the options are open today, aren't they? Right, right. Well, yeah, I think this is driving a lot of good innovation. So that's what's new for the industry. What's new for your company? So for our company, you know, we're continuing to add, whether it's technology platforms, things to supplement um, what we do to make it a better experience for our customers and our, our users here, um, you know, our people that are booking the freight. And, and one of the things, the biggest goal that I have here is I want to come, become a top 50 3PL in the country. Um, so I have a goal to hit $250 million after my $100 million here, maybe this year or next year. <laughs> Nice. Well, I'm, I, based on what we talked about, I think you're on your you're well on your way. Yeah. No. Absolutely. I have a great team, and now that we have some people in place and the size that we are, we actually have a strategic plan in place, and we're growing out an agent network that we're continuing to grow and um, expand. I want to expand into other services. So, so, so who are the who are typically people who would become agents for you? Are they existing? Uh, third-party logistics companies like brokers? So, yeah, you have, you know, you have your typical agents out there like your Landstars, um, Mode Transportations, another company that have like agents type people. So they're like people that are like mom and pop shops. Some of them are a little bit bigger. They have an operation. And they take advantage of what you guys have built. Yes. A lot of them, truck brokers, um, they utilize your system. You're their back office. But then we have intermodal, which could help them grow into other modes or, if they're with a company um, that doesn't have rail contracts, even though they can use their door-to-door -door products, we can serve as that arm for them and do that work for them so they can continue to grow their business if they choose. And they don't have to be the experts in it. So you mentioned the technology, and you said you're still spending on technology. Of course, everybody is. Um, so I'm, I think everyone who probably listens to my podcast is familiar with the transportation management system. 
are you using a traditional transportation management system? And does that manage rail? Yeah. So what I will say is because of the way we do rail or intermodal, there's only so there's probably less than 10 companies that do it the way we do it. So there's not many systems out there that are specific to rail. There's maybe three or four in particular. Most systems we've had to customize in the past. So the system we're with now, currently, the guy had a rail background. We were able to, to build it out. So he knew the language. Because, yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, that's 75%, 80% of our business. So we need to make sure that that is key and it's doing what we need it to. So as you get as you reach to that 250 million do you think rail will still be 75 80% of your business? I hope not because my goal is to grow the truck brokerage to be more of a 50-50. We just happen to continue to grow the intermodal. Right. And then we've put in resources just this year in particular to to really grow our truck brokerage. Ah, so we so, have to. <laughs> yes, so well, I think it makes sense to be, you know, if if you're if you're picking up for somebody and they say we need rail, chances are they also need trucking. Absolutely. So. And if they're doing trucking, there's an alternative. If if you have anything that's 750 miles or more, typically a rail price should be 10 to 20% or 15 20% cheaper. Right now the rail network is really not doing so well, transit times and getting allocations and all this stuff has just been um, a little difficult this year in particular. But as we come out of this, hopefully, knock on wood, you know, that'll improve. And it's another right. al- alternative. If you're not doing both as a shipper, right? I feel like, you know, you're leaving some, you know, solutions on the table there where at least you have something else to go to. Yeah, it's 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 interesting because I think what being pushed and we've all been pushed in this pandemic time it's it's going to result in a whole bunch of new service offerings it's going to result in new connections and i think ultimately a better solutions for the shipping community absolutely yeah i think it's actually gotten people to look outside of the box um <laughs> for the first time and because you didn't have to really before but if you did you might have found some other alternatives and you'd already be ahead of the game so yep. so Planning on any conferences anytime soon? Yeah, I am scheduled to go out to the IANA concert, which is an or, uh, conference, which is an intermodal um, event out in Long Beach, actually, in September. That, how do you, what is that? It's called I- it IANA. It's Intermodal Association of North America. Okay. So the railroads go, a lot of the dray carriers go, some shippers go, and it's really, even though they have a floor. It's really us scheduling meetings every hour, pretty much, with every carrier, every railroad across the country. Right. Um, so it's a great meeting place, and we're hopeful that it's still going to go off, you know, without being canceled. But um, we have that. We have the TIA one coming up as well, and those are the two. I know a couple just got canceled. Well, talk about what you're doing with the women's. Oh, I forgot the name of the women's women in trucking. Oh, LL yeah. or LLC. Well, what you're doing with Ellen, uh, women in trucking, yeah, we might as well mention that. And then also what you're doing with Nicole Glenn. Yeah. So Ellen Boyd, uh, president of Women in Trucking Association, great organization to be a part of. Every year I go to their conference. And you're on her podcast, right? She's on Sirius, right? Yep. I've done several um, shows with her, won numerous awards. I mean, the past few years, I think I've won three awards each year from them. Hallelujah. Yes. So um, it's been an awesome place to network and meet other people and just help 
I want to have Ellen on my podcast. You, you should mention I talked to her and we never get. I will. I, I will talk to her. She's supposed to be on. I'll mention it to her as well and, and bring that up. And um, and another thing that I'm involved in more recently is LLC, which is the Ladies Leadership Coalition. That was Nicole Glenn started. So, so that's you and Nicole Glenn. Who else? Um, We have Blythe Brumley. I don't know yep. if you've heard of her. Yep, yep. She's been on my podcast. She's supposed to be on it again, oh, too. Oh, good. From Cyberly. She's wonderful. Yeah, yeah. Sharon Sire um, is part of it. Um, she's been around a very long time, has done numerous things. She's starting, I think she's going to be starting some consulting and stuff. Um, then we have Charlie Safro. Yep, I know her. Yep, recruiting. And then we have um, Liz Wayne from Able Transport. I got to meet her a couple months ago in Omaha when I was visiting the rail. And so what are you guys doing together? And Nicole Glenn, of course, from, from Candor Expedite. Yeah, so, so go ahead. No, I was going to say, so what are you guys doing together? So what Nicole approached me about was wanting to have a platform where we could have women that talk about whether the good, the bad, the challenges out there for other women. And it's also for men too, but to learn from our experiences, we don't know at all, but, you know, let's talk how, you know, yesterday was talking about how you build a brand and why it's so important. Failure, how, you know, how has failure made you a better leader? How do you get that raise? How, you know, how do you go in and and ask those questions? Right. I love that. I love that you mentioned the raise thing. And one of the things I was just talking to one of my daughters about this, and I said, you know, said there's a lot of research out there that a guy who's not even earned it will ask for a raise. And a a woman who has earned it will be quiet. And I go, you can blame the jerk for asking for a raise when he's (laughs) earned it. I'm also going to blame the lady for not saying, not having that confidence. And, And maybe it's, you know, just a cultural thing, whatever's happened. But I love the idea of like, and so I've pushed both my daughters and said, and I always remember when I was a kid, I wouldn't ask for a raise. I was just like, oh, when I earn it, they'll give right. it to me. That was something I learned from my dad. I get kicked a few times. Go ask. Well, you know what? <laughs> I didn't ask my dad typically. And if I did, I got turned down. So I quit asking and kept thinking, it'll get there someday. It'll get there someday. But um, he had a he had a long yes. game. See, he was trying to develop you and your siblings and said, this is the yep. long game. Deprivation is the it, start. It definitely <laughs> is. But, um, but I love what I'm doing with that group because, you know, Nicole actually. It's a podcast, right? It is a podcast that we do monthly and we're doing some mini episodes as well. And, um, you know, like I said, Nicole reached out to me to ask me for some advice. How do you grow your company to your size? And we just started talking and I think she was shocked that I would, would talk with her about it. And it just turned into this where like, I want to be able to help other women. Who wouldn't talk to Nicole? Right. <laughs> I know. She's great. She's absolutely great. And I think, you know, as busy as I am um, and she approached me about it, it was like, yeah, I would love to do it. I don't know how much time I can put into it, but my marketing works with her marketing to get stuff going and we work together. Oh, my friends at Sunnet, my friends at Sunnet just did that. Uh... Nicole's website. Oh, yeah. Nice. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Sun and Interactive. So it's exciting. They do a lot of logistics websites. Oh, good. But yeah, it's it's been exciting, though, to see where she has come. And I think it's empowering, though, to to know that you have someone you can bounce ideas off of. And we both ask each other questions. I mean, I had another business owner reach out to me as well. Like, how did you get your dad out of the company? And, you know, I was able to hook her up with someone, like you said, here's a connection. And this is, you know, we talked about it and she got it done. And 
just a, you just hired some right. bouncers and <laughs> right, them out right, <laughs> right. So it's been a very cool thing too because she asked me that, but then I was able to, you know, well, how did you grow this? And she shared information with me. So it's all about again building your network and you know making the women, hey, there's people here that want to help, and if you're not sure how to do right. it, ask because we'll help you. Right, right. Yeah, if there's one thing you learn along the way is you can't make a business successful all by yourself. You really need to have you really need to have some um, counsel. Yeah. And, 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 you, and especially where you get where there's not very many people who've had your level of success. So you go, who am I going to ask advice from? You know, if you haven't been anywhere near that success, it's hard to say, oh, you know what I would do? You're like, I don't care what you would do because you've right. done it. <laughs> well, the funny thing is the lady that asked me how I got my dad out of the company, her company is twice my size. So the cool thing was like when you just said that, now I was like, okay, well, how did you get your company to that size? <laughs> and what challenges, you, go. you know? So it, it all comes back. It takes a village. It does. It takes a village <laughs> to raise the CEOs. <laughs> yep, yep. All right. So what I'll do, um, Christy, well, I, I'll put a link to your company in the in the show notes. So anyone wants to reach out, they can do that. And I also put a link to your LinkedIn profile. And if you give me links to uh, your podcast with uh, the LLC, the Leadership Leader, Ladies Leadership Coalition. Okay, if you give me if you give me a link to that, I'll make sure we include that so you guys can check out uh, Christy. It's not just you. There's a whole bunch uh, of ladies yep. in this business, and and you can check out their podcast. I'm sure it'll yeah. be interesting. Christy, thank you so much for taking the time. Absolutely. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it very much. All right. And thank all of you for listening to my podcast. Your support is very much appreciated. Until next time, onward and upward. You've been listening to the Logistics of Logistics podcast, where we engage in conversation with experts in the logistics field. For more details, visit thelogisticsoflogistics.com or follow Joe Lynch on LinkedIn.